Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. And we're about to hear from the man whose voice you just heard entering the program. He is Jay Cresswell, one of my former colleagues at WGTO and currently the program director at K-Love in Dallas. Jay, thanks for being on with me again. Appreciate it, Jeff. Anytime. Yes, always glad to have you on board. And wanted to have you on board specifically because uh, you're one of the big Steeler fans I know. And uh, you always give me a non rose-colored glasses opinion when it comes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So the Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph brouhaha that ended uh, the game the other night, uh, a week ago Thursday. So give me your take on that is, you know, who do you think started it? How do you think, you know, it, it, it escalated? And were the right suspensions and penalties given out? Well, you know, I'm glad you said it first, just given I am a Steelers fan. And always have been. Uh, although I don't have the hatred for the Browns that many Steelers fans have, um, it's and I'm I'm just, I'm just being honest here. It's more pity, um, <laughs> and quite frankly, for most Steelers fans, the real Cleveland Browns play in Baltimore now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, as for who started it, I think at the end of a long game where they played horribly and were frustrated, um, Miles Garrett. You know, took down Mason Rudolph, possibly late. You know, I you know that's just a judgment call, and then laid on him and wouldn't get off. And I understand at that point if Rudolph is upset and says something, and none of us except those guys know what he said. Um, but you know, his own teammates say that he would never say a, a racial slur or anything like that. I mean, we don't know. We weren't there. Mm-hmm. However, you know, he wanted to get Miles Garrett off top of him. And uh, next thing you know, we see him rip off Rudolph's helmet and try to kill him with it. <laughs> and, you know, I, Tony Dungy said this today. It doesn't matter what he said. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a helmet weighs a pound more than a brick. So that's tantamount to trying to hit someone in the head with a brick. And we've also heard the comments that, you know, on the street, you know, you're up for attempted murder or battery or something along those lines. Now, granted, that you know, football players don't enjoy that same protection because of the nature of their business, but you just don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when it happened and people started talking about the suspensions, we figured that, you know, he would probably get at least the rest of the season, Garrett, that is, and uh, maybe more. Now, I have friends here who are, you know, they're local, and Miles Garrett is a North Texas kid, and they think he should get suspended for life for trying to kill someone. Mm, wow. Mind you, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make judgment on that. I think they got it right, suspending him for the rest of the year. I think they got it right with Pouncey who obviously took offense and started punching and kicking Garrett and originally got three games and they reduced it to two today, um, certainly making sure that he was not around for the rematch with the Browns next week. As for Rudolph, he may get fined, who knows. Um, but I don't know what he did, you know, other than try to get someone off the top of him who was laying on top of him. Um, and, you know, it's all anyone can talk about. 
I think if nothing racial is said and Garrett pulled out that card, that's the most despicable thing there is uh, because possibly, you know, someone who actually uh, is treated that way will be ignored because of what he did is a false accusation. Mm-hmm. So I think they got the suspensions right and probably the fines right. But, you know, when Garrett went there and said that there was a racial slur and everyone else said they didn't hear one, uh, that's worrisome. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I would say on one part of it, too, seeing that uh, Pouncey came to his quarterback's aid in such dramatic fashion while he does get suspended, it does show that the team is still together. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, Pouncey always has your back if you're a teammate of his. But he, he and DeCastro were standing right there at, the, at that time, and they would know if Rudolph had said something bad. So I just think that that, you know, clears the air into the fact that Garrett is just using this uh, in his excuse in his hearing with the league. And, you know, Pouncey is the best teammate you can have. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. I mean, he's been Roethlisberger's best friend. He has the team over to his house every Thursday night for dinner and sometimes has entertainment. He's the one that holds the team together. He just would not stand for that happening to his quarterback. Yeah, and interestingly enough, our friend Keith Feeney, our good buddy, who was also a diehard Steelers fan, was telling me he was kind of hoping that uh, Mason Rudolph would get suspended because he wants to see more of Delvin Hodges. He (laughs) He doesn't think Mason Rudolph has what it takes. Would you agree with that at all? Well, you know what? I was a, at least at the beginning, uh, when he took over for Roethlisberger, I always thought he was going to be the guy. And right now, it's hard to tell. And here's why. You know, the Steelers are down to their third and fourth wide receivers. They're, you know, second and third or third and fourth running backs. Their tight ends have been abysmal. And, you know, with three all pros on the offensive line, they regularly collapse every time he drops back to pass. So I'm not so sure we've seen a true reading on Mason Rudolph, but I will say this, I'm not so sure now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then what do you make of the stories that have floated around the Washington Redskins potentially wanting to uh, make a trade for Mike Tomlin? What do you think about that? I laugh at that. <laughs> um, because, you know, I don't know why he would want to go to what is arguably the worst-run franchise in the NFL. Uh, And, you know, I mean, I guess he has no choice if he gets traded there, but there's no way the Steelers are going to do that. They're going to re-sign Mike Tomlin, or he's going to turn him down and become like a coaching free agent. Um, I don't know why anyone would want to go coach the Redskins unless it was their first chance. And how do you think, especially being as a fan, so you can speak to this, the overall fan base, do they want Tomlin to go at this point? I don't think so. Uh, You know, I do think the Steelers have coaching problems, and I don't think it's the head coach. I think it's on the coordinator level, uh, especially the offense. Um, You know, every team in the NFL can send a guy out five yards and throw him the ball and get a first down. They can't do that. Every other team can run a rubber outs, you know, where they, like the Patriots do endlessly and get someone open for a short. They, they can't do that. And I want to know why they can't do that as a frustrated fan. Uh, 
I think Tomlin has done a great job this year, and considering all the injuries they've had and you know the stuff that's happened, I think he's doing his best coaching job ever. Well, that's uh, definitely some high praise there. Well, speaking of long-tenured coaches, though, the Dallas Cowboys, and you're in that market, have a big game against the New England Patriots, and this is an interesting contrasted game because everything I'm hearing this week is so much about, boy, the Cowboys really have a chance to win this game, but they haven't beaten a good team all year. You're right. Um, And it's funny because, you know, one of my sister stations is the uh, Cowboys uh, flagship station. And so I listen to them a lot when I'm not listening to my own radio station. And most of the hosts on that station think that Garrett should go. Uh, but it's funny, you know, being an outsider and not necessarily, you know, a big Cowboys fan. Um, when they win, suddenly they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And when they lose, everyone should be fired. <laughs> and I know that's just the nature of fandom, but I, you know, I've never seen it like it is here. So, uh, you know, Garrett's a genius uh, when Dak comes out and performs like he did last week. But if he doesn't, it's somehow Garrett's fault for not calling the right plays, even though he's not the coordinator. And and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I've heard bits and pieces here and there that Jason Garrett actually throttled Kellen Moore back after the 3-0 start because it was a little pass-heavy. Uh, you think there's anything to that? I certainly think there's something to that. And it, it is just their way of doing things, and he's been here for 10 years. And one of the common uh, local complaints about the Cowboys is they have this feeling that we know what we're doing better than anyone else does, and we're going to do it our way, whether it's the best thing for the team or not. Now, uh, there are quite a few sports teams that get into that, uh, that, that mindset you know, that we're going to do it our way because we know better. Um, but unless you've got the talent and unless you have the right coaches, that that's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's tantamount to we got killed in the first half, but we made no adjustments at halftime because our way is better. That's just stupid. And in today's age, with all the analytics you can get instantly on changes that should be made and tendencies, um, not being willing to change is just stupid. And that is the M.O. of the Cowboys. Yeah, and that's in stark contrast to the Patriots, who will change their game plan, not only game to game, but quarter to quarter sometimes. Yes, absolutely. And here's the other thing, and I, I you know, you know, we're all jealous of the Patriots, and so we say we hate them. It's just because they're good. Yep. And, you know, it's the coach. And what he says... He's as well-prepared as any coach in any sport. And if you just do what he says, you will win. Mm-hmm. And they've proven that again and again. So all you need to do is buy into that thought process. You know, it's not unlike if you join the military, you follow orders, okay? Well, if you play for the Patriots, you just do what they tell you, and you'll win the Super Bowl. And, you know, is I, that sounds awfully black and white and cut and dry, but it's been proven to be true for the last 18 or so years. And with, you know, Belichick calling the shots, you see his assistants come and go. They get head coaching jobs. They fail. It's him. Yeah. It's him and his systems and his preparation. They can put anybody in there. Now, this weekend, you know, who did the Patriots have except Edelman to throw the ball to? Not much. The news is not going to play. I mean, granted, we've got Tom Brady, who I guess is questionable this week, 
at least he was put on the injury report today. You know he's going to play. Yeah. <laughs> but all they have is Edelman to play. You know, the Cowboys will double Edelman, and then he'll just throw it to James White out of the backfield all night. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cowboys are one of the worst in the NFL at defending screen passes and defending tight ends. Imagine if the Patriots had Gronk. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be almost a a blowout situation if they had if they still had Gronkowski. Yeah. Um, and I find that interesting too because you know I think where all the optimism for the Cowboys this week is centered around before even hearing that Brady was uh, on the injured list is that you know he's not having his stellar year like Tom Brady normally has, but he's still very effective. And, yeah, they're nine and one. Yeah, and yeah, he's not going to he's not going to lose the game for them. Uh, that, right. that that happens pretty rare in his in his tenure. But I, I just find it interesting because the Patriot defense is outstanding, and it'll be interesting to see this contrast because the Cowboys' offense, at least the last couple of weeks, has been hitting much better on point. I think that's going to be a very interesting matchup. I think that is the matchup is the Cowboys' offense against the Patriots' D. I think that, I guess, I may be wrong, the Patriots have the number one defense in the NFL, maybe in some statistical areas, um, and especially against the pass. So, uh, you know, the way Dak's been playing as well as he's been playing, I think that's the big matchup. Um, you know, and who knows about the Cowboys, whether they're going to actually run the ball this week or they're going to keep trying to pass it. This will be the test of the season for them. First of all, it's the toughest team they're going to face all year. And then can they keep doing what they did the last few weeks with Dak playing out of his mind? Who knows? You know, with the Patriots defense, it could be next week they're talking about fire Garrett again. (laughs) It could be. Or, yeah, and then that'll be the interesting key because they will look to take away what they will feel will be the, the offensive weapon that hurts them the most. Right now, that looks to be Amari Cooper. Yep. Um, but, you know, if, if the Cowboys can find a way to run the football, it, it'll be interesting to see. One thing I do like what Kellen Moore has done the last, uh, especially the last game against Detroit, it wasn't always run on first down. <laughs> yes. Yes. They became less predictable, which is amazing for that whole organization to change up their way of thinking there. But you're right, and that also throws the defense off. Here's the other thing, especially last week. Randall Cobb. Yes. Man, did they miss him. Mm-hmm. And now that he's back, um, they've got two amazing options out there to throw to. And here's the other thing, and this is the secret weapon. I think Jarwin is the secret weapon, and he should be getting more reps than Jason Witten. I know that's sacrilege to say that. But analytically, he's outperforming Jason Witten. Oh, yeah, there's no question. And, and, he, and he can bust a big play, as he's proven uh, time and yeah. time again. No question about that. So last time you were on the podcast, we were talking some baseball, and we were talking about the Rangers uh, going into the off season. They're looking to uh, they're looking to have bank to spend with a new ballpark. Have you heard any rumblings of what they're what they're aiming for? Well, they won a bit on all of the big free agent pitchers. You know, I'm not sure that Garrett Cole would come here. Uh, I, I I think most people feel he's earmarked for the Angels. Um. Who knows about the other guys? I mean, Wheeler's out there, Strasburg's out there. Uh, the Rangers need to make a splash. They need a a one or two starter, and if they can keep Mike Miner eating innings, and you know some of the other staff which pitched uh, way better than anyone anticipated this year, uh, 
if they can land one of those guys, they'll be okay. And they're also looking at some position players, and Rendon is one of the guys they're looking at, and they have just openly said, we're going to open the checkbook this offseason. And I'm sure part of that has to do with the fact that they're opening a brand-new ballpark at the end of March, um, and they want to get some fans in there. But, you know, the ballpark is 85% complete. It's beautiful. And, of course, it's not going to be 110 degrees in there in the summer. So I think they're going to – and it's a smaller attendance, uh, smaller seating capacity, too. So I don't think they're going to have trouble filling the seats just because it's a new ballpark and it's going to be awesome. If they can combine that with some free agents and improve on, you know, this year's record, which was better than most people anticipated, I think they'll be maybe the second-best team in the West. Yeah, and – it's interesting you mentioned Rendon because I think he's like the key free agent domino for position players because Absolutely. because if he signs elsewhere, then you know the Josh Donaldson thing becomes a, a whole bigger yeah. deal, uh, and and I think that creates a whole lot of interesting bidding and chaos. It does. It's almost like a domino effect. Uh, you know, when everybody talked about free agency last year, when they kept saying, "Well, when someone signs, it's going to fall like dominoes." So I think, you know, especially with the position players this year, that's what the case is going to be. Um, the other thing is, last year the Rangers were talking all about getting Nolan Arenado um, to get him the year before they go into the new ballpark. I think you and I discussed that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't happen, so uh, I think they'll make a huge play for Rendon. Yeah, that will be uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. So. Something popped into my mind to ask you about because you're a guy who likes production value like I do. So I'm yeah. watching I'm watching a college basketball game on Fox Sports 1 for the first time this year. And they, of course, are now using the round ball rock theme from John Tesh that was the NBA theme on NBC for so many years. Yeah. And, and I have mixed feelings about this because, one, it, it's you know probably the most iconic sports theme song maybe out there. Yep. But it's kind of weird hearing it for a game between Moorhead State and Butler. <laughs> <laughs> the matchup doesn't quite live up to the theme music. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that would be like playing one shining moment for that matchup. <laughs> and when's the last time we got to mention John Tesh in a sports podcast? Yes, no, that's quite interesting. Have you ever run across him in your radio career? Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Okay. Yeah, he, he's as nice as can be his wife. Connie Seleka is the same. They're just two very positive, wonderful people. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. So, so yeah, so it, it, it just found me interesting as I was watching this. And, it, and it's like, you know, it's like, and it's like I, I love hearing it. <laughs> this just seems so out of place. It's very, very, very it odd. Is. Well, you are, of course, the are one of the biggest Beatle fans. I you are the biggest Beatle fans I know. What am I tell? What am I? Who am I kidding here? Uh, and and also a, a probably one of the best experts in the country on it. I would say as well. Fiftieth anniversary of Abbey Road. And did you get the uh, the the new set they set put out for that? I sure did. I bought all of it. I figured you um, would. I uh, that's my favorite album of all time. The Beatles are my favorite band of all time. Ever since I first heard it, the album, which I didn't, it wasn't when it came out, it was later on, uh, when I first heard the entire album, it, it was it was what, if I was in a bad mood, I would put on Abbey Road and listen to it, and I'd be fine immediately afterwards. And so when the new box set came out, I joked that I already had five copies of Abbey Road, 
And a friend of mine texted me and said, what do you mean you have five copies of Abbey Road? I go, well, I have the, the album, the original album, and I wore it out, so I bought it again. Then I bought the uh, Audio Fidelity Half-Speed Master version. Then I bought it on CD when it came out in 89. And then I bought the digitally remastered CD. Uh, so I had five of them. And so this time I bought the vinyl and the, the remastered CD and the remastered CD with the outtakes. Wow. So I now have eight Abbey Roads. <laughs> <laughs> and, and quite frankly, at age 60, I'm not so sure I can hear the difference. Um, but there are different mixes on many of the songs. And the outtakes are all pretty good. You know, they sound almost like the finished product, just with them fooling around a little bit or stopping prematurely. So um, I, too, bought the... 50th anniversary of the White Album last year, and I had bought the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper the year before. This is by far my favorite, and uh, it's always been, and you know what, uh, it's their best album. You know, it's the best group's best album. 50 years on, you can't go wrong. Yeah, you know what I find amazing about that is, you know, that's, talk about going out on top, right? You, their, their best album yep. was their last album. That isn't often the case for rock and roll bands. Well, and the other thing is, you know, if you recall the TV series, the Beatles Anthology, which was in 95 on ABC, you know, they asked them, well, you know, about the breakup and everything, and Paul said, look, you know, the 60s were over, we were over with ourselves, it was time we go, and you know, thank God we never got back together, and we're just very happy that our main message was peace and love. So why not go out on top with Abbey Road? And what, in your opinion, makes it such a great album? I think it's got a little bit of everything. I think it's got rock songs. It's got, you know, goofy songs like Octopus's Garden. It's got uh, Oh Darlin', which sounds like a song from the 30s or 40s. It's got John doing I Want You, She's So Heavy, which is almost a heavy metal song. And then my favorite part is Side 2, where they took all those short little songs and they produced them and slapped them together uh, into the long medley and... Uh, I just think it's, you get a little bit of all the best of the Beatles, including, you know, George Harrison doing something, and here comes the sun. You can't beat that. Yeah, and here comes the sun. I love that song so much. And what amazes me about that, it's almost like the perfect guitar strum that's never been oh, topped. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's just so clean and simple, but yet it just is so majestic. It's just beautiful. It's George at his best. And... You know, I mean, something was the was the first single from the album, and it's the first time George ever had the A single for the album. And the rest of the band went, "Yep, it's the best song." Um, and uh, you know, what happens is they found they had a third songwriter in the band. You know, <laughs> I mean, because up until then, George was permitted two yeah. songs per album, mm -hmm. and yes, he got two songs on this album. But look at what two songs they are. Yeah, uh, something next to yesterday is the most re-recorded Beatles song ever. Uh, I also had the amazing opportunity just a few months ago to attend a, a film series that is put on by a music professor, and it's called Deconstructing the Beatles. Mm. And it's basically 90 minutes of this guy. Uh, he travels around the country and does presentations in auditoriums, and he picks a Beatles album, and he goes through it song by song, and... He actually puts up on the screen, the guitar is in the first track, the drums are in the second track, the third track are the keyboards, 
then they bounce the guitar and the drums into the fourth track so that they have something for the fifth, you know, and he goes on describing this, and he also tells you little intricacies about the songs and how they arrived at the lyrics and whose idea it was and who, who played which guitar on it and what kind of guitar they played. So I went to Deconstructing the Beatles Abbey Road Side 2. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And it was... It was phenomenal. I'd say there were 100 people in the theater. It was, at, you know, an artsy theater. And it was 90 minutes of, you know, master's class on the Beatles. So you take their best album, and you get someone who knows what he's talking about and for a room full of people who really appreciate it. And it was just a wonderful experience. So if anybody is into the Beatles and the actual musicality of it, that you know, I would Google... Um, deconstructing the Beatles and there are like 13 to 15 different movie presentations on it it's just phenomenal you know and I think back you know 1969 is such a landmark year when you look at all the things that happened with yep. uh, you know with Abbey Road you look at Woodstock man on the moon I mean that's what an incredible year the uh, the three you mentioned plus Chappaquiddick yep all occurred within 44 days. Wow. <laughs> it's 1969. It's also, and, I, you know, I, this is, you know, nothing to do with Abbey Road coming out. 1969 was always my favorite year for music um, because there was just so much. Uh, there was pop. There was bubblegum. There was rock and roll. There was hippie music. There was peace and love. There was R&B? all kinds of music, and it was all huge. All in 1969. Yeah, and that you know, yeah, because it, it struck struck that upon me this year. You know, especially when the anniversary of the Man on the Moon, and you start hearing, well, hey, this happened 50 years ago, and this happened 50 years ago, and, you're yep. all, and it's like, holy crap! <laughs> it just, it's amazing, uh, you know, how lucky we were. Yeah, and when you look at the Beatles, I just find it so interesting how much of a microcosm of the '60s they were. When you look at, you know, when they burst on the scene uh, in America with Ed Sullivan and I Want to Hold Your Hand and 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 music like that and and where it evolved to to the final album in Abbey Road. It's it's just such an amazing depth of music that they well, put out that that I don't think any other band can can claim to. Some you know go through different you know they they evolve and have different sounds over the over the course of their time. But to me with yeah. the Beatles, I don't know anybody had a, a greater range. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, after the first couple albums where they did cover versions and then they did I Want to Hold Your Hand and Please Please Me and stuff like that, they started changing musically. And, you know, Beatles for Sale and then Rubber Soul and then Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Every album was different. They did new, different stuff. And in each case, it was something no one else had ever done. And I think a lot of the credit for that goes to George Martin, their producer. Mm -hmm. Because... They would come in and say, hey, can we try this? And, you know, the old state, uh, stuck-in-the-wool uh, British meritocracy typically would go, no, because it's never been done that way. Whenever they asked George Martin, can we try this, he said, sure, let's try it. And so the experimentation was there. He knew they were, you know, smoking pot all the time from, you know, 65 on, but it actually had a positive effect on their songwriting and their music. And he didn't judge. And he would say, well, how about I put this piano solo in the middle of this song? And they go, okay. It was just so collaborative and open, and it allowed them to evolve, you know, from Love Me Do all the way to, the, you know, side two of Abbey Road. 
just amazing. Uh, perfect timing. The 60s were over. We're out of here. Thanks. You know, it was just amazing. Yeah, and did you uh, did you go to the uh, the on the Paul McCartney tour? Did you catch yes, any? I did. I saw him at uh, Globe Life Park in Arlington on June 14th. Not that I remember the date. Um, <laughs> it was the fifth time I've seen him, and the you know his voice is going for sure. Uh, but quite frankly, your mind fills in all the high parts, and he gets help with the high parts too. But for a 77 year old guy to play for <laughs> three and a half hours and do 34 songs and run around the stage. And, you know, you could tell by the end of the show that he was somewhat winded, but he still performed. And, you know, he, you know, at part of the, every show he does at the end of one of the songs, he does a Jimi Hendrix guitar solo. Mm. And I said, you know, he should just turn around to the audience and say, hey, I'm 77 years old, and I just did that. (laughs) You know, and it is, like I said at the time, you know, I'd seen him four times, but it was still on my bucket list to see him again. So I went a fifth time. And I'm really happy I got to. And, you know, seriously, his voice is almost gone. I don't know that I would go again. Mm. Well, I tell you what, I would I would hope to be half as energetic at seventy seven. <laughs> Just yeah, oh, absolutely, and healthy too. That's the thing. Yeah, no, no question about it. Well, I I know this is a little off of our track of normally doing sports on this podcast, but uh, knowing you like I do, and how much you know about the Beatles, and and I figured with the fiftieth anniversary of Abbey Road, we had to talk about it. So it, it definitely was very enjoyable for, uh, for me to do that. And as always, Jay, great to have you on talking sports, and we will have to do it again soon sometime. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it, and you take care. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Kramer Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. It's made from the finest ingredients so it stops itching, heals hot spots, and painful inflamed skin. Kramer Salve contains a proprietary blend of neem, an ingredient known for its healing properties. A 4-ounce 6-month supply, including shipping, is just $30, and the 2-ounce 3-month supply, including shipping, is only $20. Help your dog end the itch and hot spot cycle. Order today at KramerSalve.net. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E. LVE.net.